Hey everybody, it's Tony, your host here. Just want to invite you to head on over to tonyfletcher.substack.com and subscribe, if you will, so that you can get yourself a weekly newsletter full of news about this podcast, my other podcast, a Substack-only subscribers podcast that's launching in December 2023, and you'll get additional show notes for this episode and other episodes complete with pictures, links, and even video and music if need be. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. And now on with the show. And if you find anyone who exercises regularly and has been for a long time and ask them, do you enjoy it? The answer will be yes. Good day, everyone, wherever in the world you may be and however in the world you may be. And welcome to a long overdue second season or series, depending which country you live in and the colloquialisms you use, of One Step Beyond, a show all about positively engaging with the world outside our door. And to live up to that premise, I figured I would record this first introduction in the outdoors rather than at my desk with all that lovely podcast gear. I'm currently sitting on a boulder um, on a trail in the Catskill Mountains, close to the village of Phoenicia in the Hudson Valley, upstate New York, getting in a last uh, training hike for a charity event I'm doing this weekend so that I can live up to the other premise of One Step Beyond, which is about stepping outside your comfort zone, which I didn't do enough of on the first series season and intend to do a lot more of on this second series season. If you're new to the show, uh, well, welcome. You're welcome to dip back. You know, on the first series, I'm really, really proud of it. We got ourselves a good little following. We did shows, uh, did a documentary about climbing Kilimanjaro. And just to give you some titles from some of the later shows, I think are self-explanatory. It's a wonderful life on the road, travel in the age of COVID, black travel matters, a winter's day's hike, the backcountry bug, you do not need a guide, Love, Hope, Strength with Mike Peters, and Equal Playing Field, Travel Days and Travel Diaries, Running an Ultra, and Having a Hemorrhage. Um, so you, that gives you an idea of the variety. If you heard the trailer for this episode, you'll know that in the next couple of episodes, I'll be going barefoot hiking with Ken Posner, who was uh, a guest on the first series. And uh, we'll also be talking to Damien Hall, a champion British fell runner, came out of nowhere to break a whole bunch of records, Midlife Discovery, which is the stories I love. He's also an eco-warrior and has written a book uh, called We Can't Run Away From This. I think the title is self-explanatory. We'll talk to him about about how the outdoor lifestyle running in particular actually damages the environment and what we can do about it. On this first episode though, we're gonna to talk to Matt Fitzgerald, who I thought would be a great introductory um, personality because he's gonna set us up nicely about the benefits of exercise, how the human body works and why we enjoy it. And also uh, why we should be taking it easy most of the time that we're exercising, which is not something that most of us do. Uh, we all want to compensate for the sedentary lifestyle us humans have ended up with. And so we go out way aggressively and don't really do ourselves any favors. That conversation's about to follow. Um, for my sins, I really didn't know about Matt until I was listening to another podcast called The Running Public, which um, does deep dives and it's much longer than this show. And they had Matt on 
And because Matt's such a prolific author, they got to talking about his writing process. The two hosts were genuinely interested. The first half hour was really all about the writing. And I'm, I'm a writer myself. I'm, a, I'm an author myself. And I listened and I felt I had a lot in common with Matt. As I said to him in our interview, I think he's more disciplined than me. But I felt like a kindred spirit. So I got one of his books last Christmas and um, loved it and it's called How Bad You Want It. We'll refer to it in the interview. And then picked up a whole bunch more from the library. Got a couple of downloads as well and uh, reached out to Matt. He was happy to do an interview because he's that kind of guy. The interview with Matt was conducted on Zoom, as many of them are, but not all of them. And it was edited slightly to bring it down to a more manageable length. It really feels largely self-explanatory. Where it's not, I may pop in to clarify things. and I will be back. And hey, it's lovely to have you back. I'm enjoying this. I always did. It's nice to be going one step beyond once more. All right, I'd like to welcome Matt Fitzgerald to the new season of One Step Beyond. How are you today, Matt? Doing well, thank you. Good. Can you please define yourself? Yes, professionally, uh, I would define myself as an endurance coach, nutritionist, and author. Uh, you have written many books. Do you have any idea how many it is? And would you like to plug some of them in order of perhaps pride and whatever you're selling right now? <laughs> Sure thing. Um, yeah, I, I I try not to count, honestly, because it. I, I would rather write a good book than a lot of books. And, and because I have published so many, I, I, it's probably I'm overthinking this, but I fear uh, creating the impression that um, I'm just a hack who, <laughs> who puts out all too many books. But I think it's over 30 now, um, which is kind of crazy. And uh, uh, some of my, I guess, my personal favorites, if, I, if I'm allowed, um, Iron War is one. Uh, that one's more narrative, uh, kind of sports history. Uh, it details the incredible rivalry in the 1980s uh, between Dave Scott and Mark Allen, the legendary triathletes. Um, that one was a lot of fun to write. Um, Diet Cults is another one. I wrote like I'm, I'm sort of an armchair sociologist. And as a, as a uh, sports nutritionist, I, I often was frustrated by how difficult it is to get folks to think straight about food. Um, so in diet cults, I, I kind of uh, just explored why that is and, and what what we can do about it. Um, and then, you know, I, I might be, well, I would say How Bad You Want It uh, is, is one of my top sellers. And that one sort of was my breakout book where, you know, I really focus in the endurance space. Um, but that one uh, was kind of taken up by the, the CrossFit community um, and, uh, strength and conditioning community. Um, so that was kind of, I've been interviewed by hockey coaches, basketball coaches about that one. So that was kind of cool. Yeah. And that's the one I got last Christmas. And then the, the newest book is called, and I, I love the second part of the title here. It's called run like a pro, even if you're slow. Yes. And, and it kind of does get to uh, really gets into nuts and bolts of, of what seems to be your philosophy, which as far as I, if I could sum that up really quickly, it seems to be let's let's learn from the professionals. We we may be amateurs. I think you use the term non-elites. I, I always consider myself just an amateur athlete. Mm -hmm. um, but you have this overriding philosophy. We can learn from people who we may never be able to uh, catch up with them or be them, but we can learn from them. Is that a sort of fair sum summary of, of what a lot of your, your writing kind of can boil down to at times? Okay. 
Yes, that, that is kind of my uh, overarching conviction. Um, it's how I intuitively approached um, progressing as an athlete myself. Um, you know, I, I put a lot of science in my writing. I, I, I like science. I'm interested in it. But, uh, you know, as an athlete and a coach, I'm a pragmatist first and foremost. And um, I, I think that, you know, if I could only choose one source of guidance, for you know, my own training and, and that of other athletes, it would be real world best practices before science. Um, though I'm glad I have access to both. <laughs> Great. I thought a good place to move on to from here would be to ask you less about the endurance athlete or even the idea of you know running like a pro, but the idea, the concept of just a general exercise and what the data has told you about why you would encourage somebody who you can see doesn't exercise enough. Maybe they've just got an office job and the office job, they just drive to work, they drive home, they're trying to leave a good, live a good life, but you can probably tell that they're not getting the exercise. Why, why would you encourage them to do it? Um, and, you know, and what's a simple piece of data you could point them towards that would say it's worth your getting out and doing X amount of, of something? I think the obvious way to answer that question is to say that, um, you know, physical exercise is like brushing your teeth. It's something that you need to do if you want to be healthy. <laughs> um, it's like uh, I, I sometimes refer to it half chokingly as as the, the hobby that everyone has to have. <laughs> um, but that sort of leads me into my my more natural way of answering that question is like, Everybody knows that, you know, everybody knows that exercise is good for you on every level. Uh, I mean, everything from like reducing your stress level to improving your sexual performance. I mean, like exercise is good for everything. Um, but we know that. And, and the person who's driving to work, driving home, not exercising knows that. For me, the, the bigger sell, and, and if you find anyone who exercises regularly and has been for a long time and ask them, do you enjoy it? The answer will be yes. <laughs> and to me, like I, I, another thing I, I often said half jokingly was like, um, I like health was among the last of the re reasons that I was an endurance athlete. Uh, for a very long time. Like I, I thought it was nice, a nice bonus <laughs> that it made me healthier, but it was like, I mean, it was probably like, you know, my fifth or sixth reason, reason for doing it. And I think that's uh, a healthy way to, to look at it is that um, a regular exercise habit can just, um, it can, it can change you. It, it, it can, it can, it can help you. It can be this, um, stimulus for a growth journey that you would not experience if, if you didn't develop that habit. Um, and it seems uh, like, a, uh, I, I don't know, I might sound like, like magical thinking a little bit, but it's true because it's not just something that it's not just a stimulus that has physical effects. It's an experience. Like it's something you're doing. Um, and, and the only way you're going to enjoy those, those physical benefits is if you like the doing of it. So I always encourage people. That's why I think, you know, like setting a goal to like run your first 5k is better than setting a goal to lose five pounds. Uh, because actually making it like leaning into the experiential side of it is actually, that's what gets you hooked. Uh, you, like you cross that finish line and you are just damn proud of yourself and you want that feeling again. 
Um, so you know, it just doesn't work if you if you if you only care about the the benefits. And you're like, okay, how do I get this over with as quickly as possible? Um, you, you, what you really want to think about is developing an, an enjoyment of it. And, and fortunately, there's a zillion different ways to exercise. So you know, the example I often give is like, all right, if you don't like exercise but you do like dancing, dance <laughs> because yeah. guess what? That's that is yet another form of exercise. So. Um, be kind to yourself and find if you're if you currently don't have the ha habit, give yourself permission to do it in a way that is enjoyable and sustainable for you. And then it has its own momentum. Right. The thing that you've really done is you have you have popularized the uh, philosophy of 80-20 training. Um, I know you don't make no claims to having discovered discovered it or and it wasn't there to be invented. I think it's self-invented. But in a nutshell. What is 80-20 and why is that so important? Right. Yeah. So even for the, you know, the sedentary people listening, you probably understand that intensity is one of the core variables of exercise. And all that really means is you know, in colloquial terms is how hard you're working relative to your personal limit. So walking would be an example of a, a low to moderate intensity exercise and sprinting as fast as you can for a short distance would be high to maximal intensity exercise. So there's this whole spectrum of intensities. And, you know, there's been a lot of debate over the years about um, which intensity is best or what what's the right balance. Um, and yeah, I think most people with any credibility would say that um, they're all good in, in different ways. Low intensity is good. Uh, moderate intensity is good. And high intensity is good. They just they affect you in different ways. So then the question really becomes like, what 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 should the the balance be? And and the answer to that question depends on well, what's your goal? You know, what what are you trying to achieve? For endurance athletes, um, there's now something pretty close to a consensus that a balance of of approximately eighty percent low intensity in terms of you know the cumulative time you, that you spend exercising, eighty percent low intensity, twenty percent moderate to high intensity is optimal. Um, it is it is what uh, elite endurance athletes all over the world do, not just runners, but in every discipline. And what, what's interesting about that is that if you re, if you rewind history a hundred years, elite athletes were not training this way. They you know it's like the, the stuff nobody knew uh, the right way to train. Um, and 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 athletes in different endurance disciplines, you know, swimmers, cyclists, cross country skiers, trained in different ways, and they didn't really talk to each other. But independently, without any sort of like the blind watchmaker uh, type of thing, it really is a form of uh, what biologists call convergent evolution. You know, whenever an optimal solution to a particular problem exists in nature, it's going to be found. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, if, there, if there's not enough incentive uh, behind it. And in sports, of course, there's it's the, the incentive structure is so simple and, and clear. Uh, you know, if you train more effectively, you're more likely to, to win the race. Um, so over time, there was this convergence. Um, again, no one was like conscious about this. They were just—it was like trial and error. Um, you know, an athlete would try something uh, different with their intensity. They would win a gold medal, and then other athletes would start copying them. Um, and and that's we, we sort of converged on this 80-20 ratio that that you know basically all elite endurance athletes do now. So to divide that into simple math, if somebody uh, is doing five days a week of one hour exercise four of those days should be really easy and only one of them 
again, if they're all one hour, that would add up, I do believe, to the 20%. One of them should be, um, you know, if, if you're a runner, it would be your speed workout. If, uh, if whatever you're doing, you would go harder. That's, that's the way to divide up the math if, it's, if it was that easy for somebody. Yes, I mean, that it, it's a slight oversimplification just in the sense that typically, typically your high-intensity workouts are shorter uh, because you can't sustain a high-intensity as long. And also, you never do an entire workout at high-intensity. You warm up, you cool down. So there's, there's a little bit of fine print, but that, that is the basic idea, yes. Right, okay. And in terms of the data proving this, one of the things I found most fascinating, it's in a couple of your books, is you have actually, uh, you, you, you're not just like an armchair psychologist, you have traveled. And I think among other things, you've gone out and, and lived and trained with Kenyan athletes. Um, what did you see from them? Because I have stood at the, uh, when I used to live in Brooklyn, I've stood at the, on 4th Avenue, watch the leaders running the New York City <laughs> Marathon. I've, I've later been several miles behind them um, <laughs> in, in the same race. And you're like, okay, for you to be able to run that fast per mile, every single mile through New York City, you must be training full on at speed all the time. And of course, the truth couldn't be further away from that, could it? What do the Kenyans do when they're training the top athletes and the, the top endurance runners in the world? Yeah, I, you know, I'll, I'll preface my answer by saying that, you know, while, while all the elites are doing this 80-20 thing, um, other research has shown that the average non-elite runner is not doing that at oh, all. Um, yeah, absolutely, yeah, so, and we're going to get to that for sure because right. I'm, I'm guilty as hell. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, you know, the typical non-elite runner is doing about 50% of their training, what I call the, the moderate intensity rut. So it's sort of, it's not, it's not hard. It's not easy. It's somewhere in the middle. Um, so, you know, what is really eye-opening, and I, I should also say, I was never an elite runner myself. I was, I was definitely competitive and, and just, you know, I tend, tended to finish closer to the front than the back, but was never even close to being able to run professionally. And yet when I have had opportunities to train with professional runners, I can keep up with them on, on their, or I could keep up with them on their easy days because they're running. I mean, there's a difference between speed and intensity, right? Like if, if you're a very, very fit and gifted runner, you, when you can be running kind of quick at, at still, and still be at a low intensity, just because your, your ceiling is so far out there. Nevertheless, you know, in absolute terms, I was able to comfortably run with the best runners in the world um, on their low intensity days because they're, they're, they're running so easy for themselves. And it, what the irony is that although, you know, elite runners, obviously they tend to run a lot more than, than amateur runners do, but uh, uh, in intensity terms, amateur runners actually train harder <laughs> than, than the elites do. Like, you know, when they're running easy, they're running easy. Right. So they might be running what, like, these are people who can run 26 uh, miles in a row under four and a half minutes. They're running what, like like 11 minute miles, 10 minute miles? Uh, the, the, it's funny. The Kenyans, yes. Like the, 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 it's just it's there are some cultural differences. So in Kenya, they 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 tend to start off at a crawl, um, and then they they tend to gradually accelerate over the course of the run. Um, in the U.S., if, if you're talking about like an elite male runner it's more like seven minutes per, per mile uh would be very typical which, which sounds kind of fast but again like this is someone who can run five minutes per mile for 26.2 miles so like just pad that by two minutes and it i mean that they, they could breathe through their nose right. uh doing that right so there's a lot for us to learn from that so you you mentioned the point about the amateurs uh doing too much at moderate i i spent 
much of my life doing that because I, I fell into this. I'm realizing in a nutshell, I was probably always a runner, but I never took it seriously till, um, although I was playing football, i.e. soccer and running and jogging, I never took it seriously till I had my first kid. We stayed at home a lot. I got up to 165 pounds, felt the gut coming on, wondered if I wanted to stick with that gut because I saw other friends looking quite happy <laughs> with, like a, <laughs> with the lifestyle, decided I didn't want to. And interestingly, I've been, since sort of taking up the, the, the more marathon level, I've been down to 140 stable and below. And so I was clearly about 20% over my optimum weight during, during that time. So that's just one, one aspect of it. But coming into it late, not having coaches for much of the time, doing weekend races, I always subscribe to the idea that you want to finish out of breath and um, you know, no pain, no gain, that whole kind of philosophy, which I think um, I'm sure a lot of us have because it's what we see on television it's what we we even see in tv dramas you know somebody goes out for a jog and they return all all sweaty mm-hmm. so i was probably doing at least 50 percent of my running at moderate intensity now interesting i was getting faster um but i guess i was also getting fitter but that's not sustainable is it and it's it's uh it's obviously obviously what you've seen is it's not going to get me up to another level yeah, I mean that's that's the tricky thing. It, it's not that you know eighty twenty is optimal and everything else kills you. No, like I mean you you can you can train wrong and still get fitter. So that sort of masks the fact that your training is not optimal. Um, I, I I liken the moderate intensity rut to um, like a chronic mild undersleeping. Like if you need eight hours of sleep a night and you consistently get seven you won't even notice how you're compromised until you get an extra hour of sleep. Um, it's similar with, with that, the, the 50, 50, uh, intensity balance. Like, sure. You'll, you'll feel okay and, and you'll get fitter and you won't really know how much fitter you could get and how much better you could feel unless you fixed that problem. That's kind of invisible to you. Right. And that, that, that that absolutely makes sense now without getting too much into the um the weeds the data because i mean uh, your your books are fascinating you you quote study after study after study you produce charts um you you're you're a great go-to because you don't just say hey i've got an idea it's here's, <laughs> here's here's my philosophy and this is why it's correct and here's the data to back it a very simple way some people listening to this will say well how do i know when i've moved out of low intensity into a moderate or high what's that what's the barrier i'm trying to stay below and there is a relatively straightforward way of testing it for yourself that i've read in your books um, hopefully i've got the right one but do you want to just just tell us that the easiest way to know what you want to stay below sure are we talking about the good old-fashioned talk test here uh well the talk test is is one that i try and do on long races for much of them that's where you can talk easily with someone i'm going by the timing yourself on a six minute all out uh i guess it's probably a oh yes yes okay yep in in run like a pro yep so yeah they're actually you know there's more than more than one way to do it um but that one is um that one is, is about as simple as, as you can get. Um, so um, you're like a six minute effort. What's interesting about, um, you know, certain aspects of fitness is, um, you know, some things change and other things don't. So um, there's a, 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 a particular intensity that's called y- your VO2 max intensity, which basically means the intensity at which you're breathing as hard as you can. Um, now, obviously, as you get fitter, you will be able to run faster before you're breathing as hard as you can. 
And, you know, the more gifted runners can also run faster before they're breathing as hard as they can. But what remains kind of fixed is that all of us, whether we're good or bad at running, whether we're, you know, early on in our fitness building or, or we're at the peak of our fitness, can sustain that intensity for about six minutes. So that part doesn't change, which makes the six minute test um, just sort of like a, um, you know, like a universal uh, standard or tool that you can use to sort of figure out, okay, where am I now? So yeah, the, um, you can use, you know, so you're running for time and you're, you're tracking how much distance you cover in that time. And from that, you can get an average pace for that effort. And that, that is your, your, your current, uh, velocity at VO2 max or your VO2 max pace. And from there, you can just, you, you can, you know, plug that in, uh, to a calculator that'll tell you, you know, how fast your easy runs should be, how fast you should be doing, you know, other different types of, of workouts. So it's just, it's a nice objective, uh, you know, empirical anchor so that you're no longer guessing, you know, am I running too fast or not? And what I got from Run Like a Pro was that you probably, uh, it may be slightly different for, for different people, but you're looking at probably staying at 60, 65% of that pace that you can do the six minutes at, and that would keep you in the low intensity. Is that correct? Yep. Right. Yep, that's, so, that's the final step. So, so for me, this was this is actually remarkably straightforward because we did our annual mile race here on the track. I ran a five fifty nine, so we'll call it six minutes. Nice, which is really convenient because even a third grader will know that's a ten minute mile. I mean, sorry, that's ten miles. It's a six minute mile. It's ten miles uh, an hour. Sorry, that's what I meant yep. to say. Of which sixty percent would be six miles an hour, which is a ten minute mile. Yep. And 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 interestingly, as I've tried, as I've gotten a little uh, older and tried to go a bit easier anyway, that's that is largely what I'm doing my 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 everyday running at 10 minute miles. Mm -hmm. The old me would have said that's not fast enough. The, the right. current me is saying, no, that's plenty fast. Having that now for a couple of years, um, I have found that I have been able to uh, knock out the marathons and even my first 100K with um, alarmingly uh, little discomfort and pain wow. i have also sort of felt myself slowing down and some of that's with age and some of that is a result of the covid and the lockdowns with the races and sort of coming mm -hmm. back from that and having to pick up pick up speed and i'm measuring the fact that i'm able to push through on tough days i'm able to get the what are generally very tough events done um without really hitting a pain barrier However, I've also read from cover to cover your book, How Bad You Want It, which is a great book because it covers real life stories with real people who came up against either injuries like work injuries, um, personal athletic injuries, or they did something really wrong and they fought back to come back and really, really want something. And I'm wondering right now whether some things I don't want enough to face up to the pain yep. involved in reaching them, like I reached, I've had, I ticked off a few goals. It's very, very interesting reading that book because I found myself asking myself, like, I want mm -hmm. to want something so badly I would go to the wall to get it, but I'm not sure I do at this point. And I guess that's fine as well, isn't it? If that's how yep. I, if that's how I feel. Yeah, I would say the only thing that is not fine is not having clarity on that. It's just you want to know one way or another. I, I find myself. Often, you know, in, in my one-on-one -on -one work with athlete clients saying there is no wrong answer. Like we just, we just need to know the answer. So, um, you know, if, if you're, you know, if you lose motivation 
for a particular goal you're chasing, um, it's not necessarily your loss of motivation that's the problem. It's your goal. <laughs> right. You know, we're we're always motivated for something. So it can just be um it's it just the important thing is just to get clarity and and you know the, the self-reflection that it sounds like was um stimulated by reading my, my book um that's the way you get to that that level of clarity and then then you can because it, it what sucks is like feeling obligated to be this way or that way uh, when in, like why <laughs> you know uh there, there truly is no wrong answer um and and just so you know just taking the time uh to just you kind of interview yourself and, and and figure out where you are and what you really want can can help you course correct when necessary. Right. Okay. And you know the philosophy that you have uh, to to get to that second the subtitle of Run Like a Pro. I think what you're trying to um, uh, offer people. I was going to say sell to people, but you're not you're not a shiller. You're not a salesman. What you're trying <laughs> to offer people is the the understanding that you you this is not about speed this is not about winning the race and i love that in the book you really encourage people to stop measuring themselves by time and pace and get into measuring themselves by by volume by by hours uh sort of like you know uh an hour an hour a week is a mile in, a, in another term call it a panda mile call it a badger mile and start because what people have gotten so hooked on their devices and you know i'm i'm as guilty as others except i refuse to use strava because i don't mm -hmm. want to be i don't want to be caught in that world of of right. publicizing it we have gone really caught with our devices haven't we and and would i be right in saying a lot of elite the really elite athletes actually are going out to run by time when they're training and not by by oh i needed to do 14.3 miles today yes yeah it's not that the devices are are bad um it's that you know any tool can become a crutch um and so you know the elite athletes are certainly you know they, they wear watches and they they measure things but they're in control um they're, they're in charge so they're selective in the in the in the types of things they pay attention to and how they use them so you know whenever you know whatever you're wearing on your wrist becomes the boss <laughs> the taskmaster that that's a problem and it can just be, you know, a lot of runners are in that place right now. They they trust their device more than they trust their bodies, um, and that it just it's a process to correct that. It it, it can be done, uh, but you know, if you you know only started running, you know, as an adult, and so you don't have all that experience, uh, like like I did, you know, as a, as a youth runner, and then so you start late, and then you go immediately to wearing a device, well. You've been set up to be dependent on on that thing. It doesn't mean you're stuck there, um, but if you want to, you know, really honestly, like we can't all be the fastest runner, but we can all master the sport. Um, we we can all get to the point where we we are consistently able to make good decisions uh, about our running. Um, and so that's really the journey I, I am encouraging athletes to go on. And, and part of that is you know becoming becoming the boss of your device, just like, just like the elite runners are. And, and keeping with this being uh, that it's applicable to all sports, you were talking earlier, earlier on that once you start exercising, you enjoy it. You ask somebody why they do it. They enjoy it. I think something that comes with that enjoyment is wanting to get better. And it would be the same doing a non um, exercising form of activity, just sitting at your desk drawing. 
you would want to be, you know, you're like, oh, I like drawing. I want to become a better artist. And I think that's built, you know, that's built into our human DNA, isn't it? And I, and uh, so, again, part of what you, you have in your uh, multitude of books is, is here's how you can get better, not to become number one, but to become your own number one, you know, to be the best, yep. best person you can be. Yep. Yeah, you know, what, what, what kind of drives me up the wall um, is when I see athletes self-limiting because they don't feel they're good enough to deserve to follow best practices. Um, and that's understandable, you know, from a psychological perspective, but it's kind of a shame. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I like to say, you know, talent should not determine how far you take your running. Passion should. You know, if if you're just a casual runner um, and you only want it so bad, um, that's fine. Uh, but if you are very passionate and and part of what makes running enjoyable for you is that journey toward improvement, then you deserve to, you know, get professional massage therapy treatments just like the pros do if you can afford it. Um, you know, you deserve if, if you have the time and inclination to train a little bit more. Uh, then go for it. Um, you know, you, your running is is every bit as important as you know the best runners running. Um, so um, you know, we, we all you know have to just choose our own priorities. But um, uh, yeah, when I see the athletes who are passionate and self limit because of that that sense that I'm too I'm too slow to you know you know see a, a you know a sports psychologist to help with my mental game or whatever. That's not true. No, it's really not person who's coming up at the back of the pack is every bit as important and they deserve every bit of much congratulations encouragement because they're out there doing it as well i i completely totally subscribe to that you have uh you've written about so many aspects of this and and just to touch briefly you've you've written a book about training your brain and yep. you've written another book you mentioned diet cults but you've written one about i think it's called racing weight um mm -hmm. and yeah, I might have thought that was a paragraph in a book somewhere, or maybe a, a chapter. You've you managed to write an entire book about getting to your optimal race weight. And you, I mean, you're not short of inspiration, are you? There's there's so many fine details. I guess we can look into if we if we really want to study this miracle of nature that's the human body. Yes, yeah, that's very well said. Um, you know, it, it, it's kind of funny because running is so simple and so primal. It, it, you know, you can be excused for asking, like, what is there to talk about, <laughs> really? But that's, you know, that's what I found. And I, I used to wonder when I was a younger athlete, like, am I going to get bored uh, eventually? And it just never happened, you know. So, like, you know, from, you know, a camera's view, it looks the same every time. But from the inside, you're always going to a place that, that you've never been before. I think if, if you approach it in, in the right spirit. Um, so, you know, I, I have a new, uh, another book that's about to come out. That's all about pacing mm -hmm. and running an entire book about the art and science of, of pacing. So, yeah, I mean, who knows, maybe I will run out of ideas at, at this point, but I don't even feel like I'm close to that right now. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty phenomenal. I'm going to return to the East Africans, um, for a moment, because for the last, well, what are we talking about? You'd know how many years, is it 20? Is it 30? Is it 40? They've, they've dominated sort of mid and long distance running. And um, with it has come a, a sort of prevailing opinion that they're genetically preordained to be, uh, to be the world's fastest um, long distance runners. 
And in How Bad Do You Want It, you've got a good chapter about this. I think it's called The Group Effect, uh, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, but you dispute that myth, and you also say that there's some underlying racism in it. And I wanted to, 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 to touch on that from both aspects. Could you, could you elaborate on that? Sure. Um, you know, the best way um, to understand why, uh, you know, the assumption that East African runners have a genetic advantage for running is fraught is to consider other sports. It is very, very difficult to find any sport that is not dominated by one or two or at most a handful of countries. Like, um, you know, do Canadians have special hockey genes? Um, do Cubans have special boxing genes? Do Hungarians have special water polo genes? Uh, you know, we're very quick to look at environmental, cultural, other explanations for dominance and those types of sports when the sport is dominated by white people. <laughs> but when it's white people trying to explain dominance and the athletes who dominate the sport are black, then they go straight to uh, must be something in their bodies. So there's a name for that. It's called superhumanization. So you know, white people succeed through hard work, black people succeed because of genes like that's, you know, that's what what's going on there. Now, that does not mean that genes cannot be uh, you know, a factor uh, in, in some sports and some populations. So, you know, it's not like we have to, you know, plug our ears and pretend that that is never the case. But it, it's it's um, you want to be wary of making assumptions. And and when you look at um, Kenya and Ethiopia in running, and if you just forget about the whole gene piece, there are plenty of other explanations for why why they dominate running. And the one I focus on in that book is the the, the fact that they tend to train in, train uh, in groups, um, which is which is huge. Right, and they um, they tend to uh, walk and run to school a lot of them, mm -hmm. and. I do believe uh, sports are pretty limited at schools to sort of running and soccer. And, yep. and the, I, I think a bit of self-selection has, has indicated that they can achieve more as runners than, than against the soccer giants. So, um, you know, that also speaks to it. They're on their feet a lot. They've, they've, they don't have a sedentary lifestyle as well. They're on their feet a lot. And a lot of them are jogging to school, even barefoot or especially barefoot. So th that plays into it as well. I would, I would, suggest or I've yep. taken uh, yes all of that and more um you know uh, being born and raised at high altitude um is another one the kenyan diet is pretty darn optimal for for running um the fact that there's a lot of poverty in kenya so talk about how bad you want it you know like i mean becoming a, a professional runner is is the way out uh, of, of poverty for there aren't a lot of other options um, and yeah the fact that there are only two sports so all of the talented athletes are being funneled into to just two sports and um, so yeah there's a myriad of factors and I think one other reason uh, one sorry one other reason that it, it's a false assumption and that there's a degree of uh, you know you call it the superhumanization uh, which is you know there, there's there's a form of racism whether it's conscious or subconscious in this is that Americans dominated the same sports for the longest time and mm -hmm. when the first if it was the first running boom took off i guess 70s 80s i mean there were a number of runners in one track club in boston mm -hmm. that were consistently 
running what under two hours 10 minutes which was just yep. ridiculous at the time that was the group effect at work wasn't it yep right. yes it, abs it absolutely was like that's what you find when it very seldom uh do you find just a random great athlete appearing in a place where you know athletes aren't normally great in that sport it's always a group you know it's always like you know like you know you know uh, Finland had its day as the the world's running powerhouse. It's just because like the right the right ingredients came together in the right way at a certain time, and that that's how you always see it, you know. So yeah, that whole Boston thing was unfortunately ephemeral. Like it was like Boston was the center of the running universe. I mean, they still have the, the marathon, but that that culture kind of fizzled. Um, and and so, but but then it popped up again uh, in Boulder and Flagstaff and. And that's just how it works right and there's uh, the old cliche was it a rising tide lifts all boats and i guess that's also also plays into this um within running communities um more so than other some other sports um in in the states and I, and i think this is true in britain where i come from as well there's a disparity between the actual sort of athletics aspect of it and the um the running clubs by which i mean most running clubs are alarmingly white most casual runs are alarmingly white we have that in the town i live in the city i live in kingston which is a very diverse city and um the running groups uh, historically have not been it's not certainly not conscious in the sense of you know nobody would be the, uh, uh, that I know of would ever consciously want that. But there is clearly a, um, a some kind of an issue there. And I know it's been met in some cities by people starting to sort of like, like more like street running, the idea of, mm -hmm. of that. But you've actually, um, I do believe, whether it's with a partner or not, you have been trying to tackle this from a, a different aspect. So I'm going to invite you to talk about uh, about a program I believe you've got, uh, where, where the, the, how it came up and how it works. Yeah, sure. I'm happy to. Um, so it, it, it so happens that uh, my wife is black. Um, and so, you know, just, you know, we've been together for a very long time. So, um, you know, w when when you see racial injustice or lack of representation and things like that, even though I, I am white, I see it through a different lens, just through my personal experience. And I've always felt that, um, you know, the, the sport itself gets better when it's more diverse it's just like you know it's like it's just like it, you can think of the, your sport as a party and it's just like a more vibrant more enriching party for everyone when you know i remember you know the, the first boston marathon i was physically present for was the boston marathon in 1983 and the participation was close to 95 percent male so even take race out of it now who would say that the sport isn't better now that it, there's a 50-50 gender balance at, at the Boston Marathon versus 95-5. You know, it's just like, so it's not, it's better for the guys and, and the women that it became more diverse. Um, and that's how I feel about, um, you know, racial diversity in the sport as well. So, um, so you know, in order, and, and, you know, it's not like, I, you know, I'm not going to run for Congress and try to make my mark that way. But, you know, I'm, I'm an endurance co coach. I'm uh, an entrepreneur in the endurance space. So my way of trying to make a little bit of a difference was to create um, uh, the Coaches of Color Initiative with my friend uh, Bertrand Newsom, um, who has a, a big, vibrant running club in uh, San Jose called Too Legit Fitness. Um, and it's just, it's a, uh, uh, we award what we call apprenticeship grants. So the, the whole idea is to make um, a huge impact on a few lives versus a tiny impact on a lot of lives, but it's, it's a soup to nuts 
apprenticeship experience. There's a, a monthly stipend that comes with it. So there's there's money. Um, they get a certification through my company, 8020 Endurance. They become a certified coach. Uh, there's job shadowing and mentoring. So each month, uh, the apprentice uh, sort of shadows a different person and gets mentoring from a different person. There's networking. There are opportunities to uh, put them in front of the public, you know, to build, uh, um, you know, just awareness that that they're out there as an authority in the sport. Um, our current apprentice, a woman named Jessica Schneer, she just had an opportunity to come out to a running camp uh, that my company was involved in and just get experience working one-on-one with athletes in that environment. Um, so, And it's also some tailoring to the individual because each person's different. Uh, Jessica happened to want help creating a, a coaching website for herself. So we found resources to to help over that. So it's a really cool program. It's a lot of fun. Um, and I, I think it is, uh, uh, I think Jessica would say it, it's working out well for her and hopefully will for, for many more uh, aspiring coaches in the future. You are, of course, I was going to say beyond being a podcast host and a blog host and you have your company, um, you're a runner, you're an athlete and you're a coach. But I was, um, it does not come across in your conversational tone, but you seem to have, have caught the, the worst of long COVID. And can you talk a little bit about what that's meant to you, what that's done to you and, and how you're getting around that? And I guess also as a science geek, which you are, what are you learning about all of this? Sure. Um, yeah, I, I, I drew the short straw in the sense that I, I got COVID very early. Um, it was like the end of March 2020 before before the, the original shutdown. Um, so, you know, there weren't vaccines. I mean, there weren't even tests at that point. Uh, we knew nothing. Um, I was very sick for a month. I did not have to be hospitalized, but it was the longest and most uh, severely I've ever been you know, sick from, from a virus. Uh, but, I, you know, I, I actually recovered or seemed to recover fully. Um, and it's one of the reasons I didn't. It took me a minute to, to sort of self-diagnose long COVID. So I was actually I returned to what, what appeared full health and fitness for about six months. And then I started to unravel. So at first I suspected things like maybe iron deficiency anemia or, you know, one of those things that can affect a runner. But um over time, I, I, you know, as I did my research, uh, everything lined up, and it was clear that that I had long COVID. And um, you know, in terms of what I, well, what it's meant for me, um, you know, I, 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 can, I can no longer run. I have not been able. I, I cannot do any uh, any exertion for me is is literally toxic. Um, it's they call it post exertional malaise, um, where you can you can sort of grind your way through you know, a workout, um, but then you, you might be bedridden for three weeks, uh, afterward. Um, you know, it's, I, 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 I've enumerated my symptoms and the list is, uh, you know, some of them come and go. Some of them are core. The core ones are just crushing fatigue, uh, you know, what they call brain fog, which is like, you know, pretty debilitating cognitive impairment, mood disturbances, insomnia, um, and then, you know, shortness of breath, dysautonomia, like trouble, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, autonomic nervous system regulation is all thrown off. Those are the core ones. But there have been all kinds of weird ones, like hyperplexia is one, which is like a, a hypersensitive startle reflex. Mm-hmm. My wife is on pins and needles around me because um, I just have what I call tunnel consciousness, where I, ju- I just disappear into whatever's immediately in front of me. And I have no idea what's going on outside of it. 
That's a shocking list of ailments. And uh, for for somebody who literally writes books about the brain, you know, to have brain fog, somebody who writes about being healthy and, and, and having uh, you know, all your senses in the best possible order. Um, yeah, I mean, talk about the short the, the, the short straw. I feel like it's like a guitarist having their hand cut off or something. And yet, and yet you sound very coherent. You present well. Do you think that your your own focus on solid health and athleticism has has has, has possibly even helped? I mean, I, it may not feel like anything has helped, but do you feel some of that has helped? How are you getting through this mentally? And also, what's the data on cures? Right. Um, you know, it, it's it's by far the hardest thing I, I've ever been through, um, and I and I I've I've been through some hard episodes, you know, it, previously in life, and, and um, you know, it's, it's tough. It, um, you know, you lose your sense of identity. Um, you lose, um, your connection to other people. Social anxiety has been a, a huge part of it as well. Um, you just feel awful, you know, all, you know, sometimes just all the time with no end. Um, you know, you lose your ability for, you know, forget the identity piece, just, just not being able to, you know, I used, uh, I've told people that, you know, I used to wake up like the way a golden retriever wakes up, like excitement was my first emotion every day because I had created the life I wanted for myself. And in large measure, that was just ripped away from me. Um, I really lost the capacity to to feel excitement or, or eagerness or even, you know, even joy. Um, uh, and then uh, and, and also it can be just um, like there's a lot of boredom, honestly, because like I'm wide awake you know, at 11 o'clock in the morning on Tuesday in the afternoon, and I'm non-functional, I can't do anything. I'm just staring at the ceiling and just, you know, the days just seem endless sometimes. Uh, and, and part of what is kind of like a, so diabolical about it is that I don't look sick. Um, I don't present sick. And so I don't get a, <laughs> I don't always get the benefit of the doubt. Sympathy. Um, you don't get yes. sympathy. Right. Yeah. Or, you know, yeah, it's not so much sympathy, but understanding, you know, that, that I'm looking for. Uh, but uh, but I will say I'm also, uh, as I mentioned, like in a bit of a remission at, at this point. So I'm also doing better. Like I know if I ran for if I just went out and ran a mile right now, it would be disastrous. But but my you know, I, I've told people, you know, if, if you can only have one organ in your body functioning, like you're going to choose your brain and, and my brain is working better now. So. Yeah, at this point, it's been so long since I was able to to train or compete. I don't really think about that anymore. I actually get a lot out of just being involved in the sport the way I am, coaching and writing about it. Um, it's not painful. I'm not like racked with jealousy when I, you know, cheer someone else on at a race or something. So, so that has kind of softened the, the blow a little bit. And what's the hope for long term? Um if cure is the word is it treatment is treatment the word i'm looking for again it's so easy for so many people even those who've maybe lost somebody to covid to kind of tune out of the long covid unless they live it living with somebody either living with it themselves or living with somebody who has it it's one thing that i you know obviously i've, I've learned a lot uh, more than i ever cared to about uh, immunology epidemiology virology all, all this stuff um and one thing I, I was not aware of until you know this affected me personally is that you know post viral chronic illness is quite common um and it's always been around it's just the only difference this time is that you know the numbers are just so much more vast um 
But if you know someone who has, you know, uh, chronic fatigue syndrome or fibromyalgia, or even a lot of, um, you know, autoimmune diseases, a lot of those are post-viral. Like you get a virus and then it just kind of leaves its calling card behind and you're never quite the same. So the symptoms are distinct. You know, that when I had COVID, I had my, I had a bad cough. Well, I, that's not on my list of 30 plus symptoms right. of long COVID. So it, it just sort of looks a lot different, but that's, so it, it's just a thing and it's been around for a while. And, and for a lot of people, they're, they're they never get better. You know, they just, it's, it's a life sentence. Others do recover spontaneously. Um, and then, you know, I haven't, <laughs> um, but then, you know, in terms of, it's hard to find a cure because nobody knows the exact cause. But again, that's the advantage of, of just the, the scope of this thing, that there's a lot of research attention on it. Like we've already learned a ton in, in, in the last two years about, you know, what COVID, long COVID is. It's actually, it appears to be like, there are actually three different it's not one thing. It's you can have one of three versions of it, um, and and there's a lot of you know. So treatments are coming online. It, it really is, as you said, like more symptom management. Um, so that's the way I've been approaching it. Mostly, I'm I'm focused just on living my life and and making the best of my current limitations. But I'm also key because I know other people with long COVID who've just put their life on pause and they're like frantically searching for an immediate fix. And I don't think that really serves their mental health because the immediate fix just isn't there. And then, and then you're just, you're just pausing your life, you know, but, but same time, I don't want to miss out. Like I, I, I can be a little bit too passive about, uh, about, you know, trying, trying to get better. So I've just sort of like at, at any given time, I, um, I, I tend to like, I tend to focus on whatever my most salient symptom is, you know, you know, you know, which one, which one is most debilitating or, or, or is just bothering me the most and addressing that. So for a while it was insomnia. Um, and I just had terrible, terrible insomnia and I was able to find a medication that allowed me to sleep. And that was just a huge quality of life boost right there. Um, and then, um, actually for the, for the cognitive stuff, um, uh, believe it or not, uh, Prozac has helped me. Um, one thing I didn't know about uh, that whole class of medi medications, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, is that they're also neuro-anti-inflammatory. And, and really, that's what's kind of going on with, with the, 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 the uh, vaunted brain fog is that it's, it's just uh, brain inflammation. And so going on Prozac is, is kind of the reason I'm talking to you right now, that my brain is working better. So it's just yeah, you know, I'm just one at a time, you know, it, it adds up. Like I, I've told people, you know, if I woke up the morning after my last day when, when I was well, feeling the way I do right now, I would immediately call 911. <laughs> but everything is relative. Everything's contextual. So the way I feel right now, I'm almost euphoric because it's quite a bit. It, it's so far from 100 percent, but it's also so far from the depths uh, of, of my worst days. So, it, you know, in context, it feels pretty good. I think one thing about the because you've written a lot about endurance athletics is uh, endurance athletes know that uh, we have to be in it for the long haul. So the life is a marathon kind of mantra. Everything is is a marathon. You, 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 the end, the end is very rarely in sight. And um, yeah, I'm sure that can. I think we also suffer a lot of defeats um, with the athletic yes. lifestyle. We, we get used to saying, wow, that that did not go as planned. 
And maybe maybe that can help because for all that sometimes people think, oh, that person's athletic, you know, they got it made. Actually, they face a lot of defeats. Hearing about people like you that have that have been in this now since day one and haven't gotten out of it, it's um, uh, it's just a reminder. It's a reminder of what this pandemic has done to us. To have a um, longer and healthier life, so to you know live life to its full, get reach old age and be able to enjoy old age. Does the exercise need to be cardiovascular? By which we mean kind of get the heart rate up and pumping. I mean, is walking enough for most if, if for for people? I, I sure hope so because that's my current exercise uh, <laughs> right. regimen. Yeah, um, it, you know it, it, it's funny because quite honestly, I, I mean, I certainly hope to return to full health. But I honestly don't regret the experience I'm having because I have learned so much. Um, I, I, I tell people, you know, it sucks, but it's also fascinating, <laughs> you know, what I'm going through. And I've, you know, I've learned a lot about, honestly, like exercise and, and detraining and health that on an experiential level that I, what, that I didn't have an opportunity to learn because I had my health. Um, and, and I, I'm quite certain that the, you know, I, I typically walk uh, two miles in the morning and two miles in the afternoon every day. Now that sounds like a lot probably to some people, but that is way less <laughs> than I was doing before. Um, and it, I, I, I am, I, I can tell you for sure it's, it's way better than nothing. You know, I, I'm still, obviously I'm, I'm, you know, seeing doctors a lot and having medical tests and I'm still in every other way, except for long COVID, a, a very healthy 51 year old man and it, it's partly because um although the you know the walking i do is a lot less than than I, what i used to do it's in fact it might even be overall better for my health because like you know i i would get injured i, I would I, you know i was pushing the limits as an endurance athlete like there, there's a you know there's there can be too much of a good thing absolutely um, so, absolutely yes. i think we've all been there um I th yeah i think you're literally the person who's sort of walking a mile in somebody else's shoes right now because you're somebody who's been that endurance athlete and coaching and and running and triathlons and now to have that taken away you and be somewhere else you are literally like oh this is what the limitation other people have and i've learned now now i have to walk a mile learning that i have those limitations i can't run i can only walk that mile yes cool. exactly so yeah it just makes me um it, I, I definitely uh, um have uh more empathy for people who have similar kinds of limitations than than I did previously. Uh, again, there's so much more we could talk about. I'm going to uh, literally go out by saying so of the of the books of yours that I have managed to read or at least read read part of. They're all um, either about the body, the mind, or about other people. But you have written a couple of narrative books, at least. And uh, I want you to recommend me. I love first person narrative, nonfiction, first-person narrative, when somebody can tell a story really, really well. Uh, I think you've written more than one. So if somebody wants to, to hear about you and your experience, what's the book they should go get? I'm going to cheat and give you two. Uh, there's one I wrote called Life is a Marathon, uh, which is, uh, it actually it gets into my relationship with my wife and mm -hmm. ties it into uh, how running has been a vehicle for becoming the man I wanted to be. Uh, my wife has bi bipolar disorder, and it's, it was a, has been a, a big challenge for both of us. And in an odd sort of way, like um, the self work that I've done as an athlete, um, 
allowed me to, over time, become the husband my wife needed me to be. Um, so that one, that one goes pretty deep. Um, uh, and it seems almost like two books in one, but I think the whole thing hangs together. Um, and then another one who, for people who want something a little lighter, um, I had a stint in 2017. Uh, I was 46 years old at the time, had never been a professional runner. And I spent an entire summer living, training and racing with a, a team of world-class runners, half my age, uh, and was able actually to run the Chicago marathon at the end of it. As a professional, that some some rules were bent, some strings were pulled. Uh, it was just an incredible experience. So it gives you a chance to sort of live vicariously, just like an every man uh, getting to live a dream. And in fact, the title of that book is "Running the Dream." So self-evident title. That's that's fantastic. Um, Eighty20endurance.com is that correct? That's okay. correct. And right. yeah, I should also mention for if you want to learn more about the, the Coaches of Color initiative, or even make, perhaps make a donation to it go to 8020foundation.org. My personal website is mattfitzgerald.org. I'm also on social media, and I think that about covers it. I really enjoyed talking to you. <laughs> Great. Thanks again, Matt. Take care, and good luck with the long COVID as well. Thank you. I will post links to all of those in the show notes. And just to back up, I sort of clarify a couple of points if I needed to. It's pretty minor, but the top marathon runners – uh, still don't quite get under 4 minutes 30 per mile. It's closer to 440. Uh, <laughs> way out of your reach and mine, but hey, there you go. And similarly, uh, what I was talking about with the Boston group effect is probably best exemplified in 1979 when four of the top 10 finishers, they would have been uh, male, of course, at that point, uh, per Matt's comment, were all members of the Greater Boston Track Club and only one of them, the winner, Bill Rogers, ran under two hours, 10 that particular year. But still, that's the group effect at work. And talking of uh, these effects at work, uh, an example of the 80-20. Um, again, I was just, just listening to a different podcast and they were um, interviewing Killian Jonet, who is considered maybe the greatest uh, trail runner, ultra runner, possibly of all time. And just recently, this August, won the UTMB, which is the main mountain running competition in Europe. And when Killian shared his training plan for that uh, victory, he uh, put, had 59% zone one, 18% zone two. In other words, 77% was done at lower intensity. And people might figure that the greatest trail runner, you know, possibly of all time, was bound to be doing more of his workouts at moderate or high intensity. Not so. So take it from the experts and Matt is one of them. Keep it easy most of the time and it will pay off in the long run. I have been doing that and I have certainly been feeling better on a daily basis. Um, I can I can tie two things together here. Um, Matt, when I was talking with Matt about the um, lack, you know, how bad do I want it, about uh, possibly lacking motivation, not for what I do, but for a particular event. And this might also be just an opportunity to uh, very quickly sort of let you know what's gone on in the past year. It wasn't intentional for the podcast to take this long a break. It was intended that it would dovetail segue into another podcast related to a book I had coming out this time last year. And after that come the new year, I wanted to take a bit of a break. It turned into a longer break. I got to finish another book and that was really important to me. Along the way, I did take the 
Zoom recorder out with me on a couple of field events, both at the uh, escarpment run that was run virtually in 2021, uh, a long hike where I completed my Catskill 3500, uh, got my badge. That one may still turn into a show. And I also got to run my first 100K, as I think I mentioned to Matt, uh, last December down in Virginia. It wasn't too hilly. That was deliberate. And it allowed me to um, really see what I was made of if I could jog a little more than the Manitou's Revenge, which is uh, the really hard run in the cat skills that we did the show about um, last year called Running an Ultra. And the answer was, yes, I could do more running and I thoroughly enjoyed it. So, you know, that was a new challenge. Um, I also, to reference back to another show, I got down to Columbia last year in 2021, in October, in early October, to visit Artisumapaz, which is the Center for the Arts that Rick Dragon, uh, a former friend of oh, sorry, an ongoing friend of mine, a former neighbor of mine up here in the Hudson Valley, opened down in uh, Colombia, in Cundinamarca, outside of Bogota, about three hours outside of Bogota. I had the most wonderful time down there, really wonderful. And that's all part of uh, positively engaging with the world outside our door. I took the recorder there I I there was a really lovely group of young people from all around the world staying there for their art residencies of different um, you know different kinds different modalities um there was this one evening where we had a conversation about why we travel and it happened organically I didn't have the recorder out with me I I felt like I couldn't replicate that conversation so I've missed a couple of opportunities as well to bring you new episodes but That's that. And here we are. And I want to thank Matt because just having that little conversation about it's not, you know, it's not the motivation. It might just be the actual challenge. And um, right around the time of doing that interview, I came up with a new challenge. And I'll tell you more about it now by reverting to the recording. I started off this show with Made Out on the Trail by Phoenicia, right at the spot where I hope to be just about at the end of that challenge in just three days from now. Many of you may know that I am from South London. Actually, I was born in Yorkshire, but I was raised in South London. I lived there from the age of two to the age of 22 or 23 when I came to New York. And I was not much more than about seven when I fell in love with football and specifically the club closest to where I lived then and most of my time in South London, Crystal Palace. Uh, love them to bits. They have been what's called a yo-yo club over the years, but are now in their 10th year in the Premier League, which is just astonishing for those of us who remember much, much harder times. And, you know, football is a big business these days, way bigger than it was when I was a kid. And yes, we know uh, players make an awful lot of money. There's ridiculous amounts of money floating around uh, the sport. But clubs also have to run as a business and not a lot of clubs make money. So Crystal Palace has a foundation. It's called the Palace for Life Foundation and it does incredibly good work in the South London community. Now, I make no bones about it. I'm just sort of roughly middle class, but I spent a lot of my youth on the streets of South London and it was not good then. And I will tell you, unfortunately, a lot of it is much worse now. Palace has a wonderful catchment area with a lot of young talent 
that area is also uh, impoverished and there are uh, major issues that go on with that and unfortunately some of those include crime but the Palace for Life Foundation also does just like great work with sports it actually helps sponsors a Downs syndrome team but it also does programs to get youth away from knife crime it just works on a number of great levels and it does this mainly by raising money from, I guess, supporters. But you don't have to be a supporter. And that's why I'm hoping you will listen to this a little bit further. Every year, there's a marathon march in South London where uh, people can go out and you know, get some sponsorship. And as you will hear, I've decided to join in in my own way. And the way I'm going to just like let you guys uh, all hear about this is I play you a little bit of a phone call I had with uh, uh, Palace for, uh, podcast host, FYP podcast host, Jim Daly. FYP stands for Five Year Plan. It's a Palace fanzine. Great podcast. Um, he was doing the Marathon March on Saturday, September the 24th. And I called in on him at the halfway mark. Just a few days before that, I took part in the podcast. And uh, Jim asked me about my own plans and what I was going to do to help raise money for the Palace for Life Foundation. That all follows. This is an extra 15 minutes or so tagged on to the end of this podcast. Most of the future ones will come in under an hour. But listen, I really hope that you will follow through. I hope that you will support me. But I also think talking to Jim is just a reminder that we can all do these kind of things, even if you don't put in the training. Jim Daly, host of the FYP Fanzine podcast and uh, somebody I've, I've, I've come to know and love over uh, a number of years now. It's a Saturday. It's 7.30 where I am. It's 12.30 lunchtime where you are. Uh, but where are you right now? What are you doing, Jim? Uh, we're walking through Wimbledon currently, I think. I don't think we're too far away from the um, from the plow, new plow lane, I think. But uh, we are currently... Uh, yeah, almost halfway through the march so far, which is um, not feels like feels like you're going, but we are so far behind everyone else. <laughs> we're a good pace, and tell- everyone else is doing marathons and style paces. So uh, yeah, but we're still here. All right, you're walking 26.2 miles around South London, I believe, starting and ending at uh, Selhurst Park. Um, can you? Uh, you've done this before. Can you just tell me why you would put yourself through this? What are you, What are you actually achieving other than getting blisters by walking around South London for the whole of a Saturday for twenty six point two miles? It's a good question, and to be fair, it's the same question we get from members of the public who uh, stop us as we're walking, saying, "Why? Why are you doing this?" Because all they see is a, there's about one hundred and fifty people in total doing it, so they see a stream of people in wearing white shirts with red and blue on them. Um, but yeah, the reason we're doing it is to raise money for the Palace for Life Foundation, which is the official charity of Crystal Palace FC. And they do fantastic work across South London, um, helping people that need it with various schemes and projects. And they, they, they genuinely do really, really wonderful work. So every year since 2017, I think, they've put on this marathon march, walking around London. Uh, the route changes each year. Just about, It used to be up into central London and back to Selhurst. No, actually, I like it. It ended in central London. Now, for the last couple of years, it's been a sort of loop around South London, uh, starting and ending at, at Selhurst. Um, it's been lovely. I've walked along the Wandle Valley by the Wandle River so far, and it's been a very picturesque um, route. And we're currently in Wimbledon. This is the first time we've actually walked by a road, so I apologise for the uh, sound in the background. Oh, that's uh, okay. It's not, ba- it's not bad. So you've mainly been in the parks and so on now, just to keep you away from traffic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's been very green. It's been very picturesque. It's been, it's been lovely, actually. Really, really nice. Well, you've yeah, done this not, before, uh, haven't you, Jim? Have you done it every year? 
Uh, I've done every year by 2019 because my, my daughter was born then. So I took, I took that. She was born sort of the same weekend I think it was happening. So uh, that's a pretty, that's a that. pretty valid excuse, to be honest. Great excuse. I've been trying to work out if I can have a child every year since to try and get out of doing it. But uh, <laughs> logistically, that's quite difficult. Well, um, I, wanted, I did want to ask uh, yeah, on Yeah, so that. I've done it every year, I think. Yeah, well, just when you're talking about trying to get out of it, I'm assuming that for a lot of the people who do this, it's the biggest, toughest thing they do each year. Would that be true for you and pretty, most of the people in your group of six? Oh, absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, completely. And I would say collectively across the six of us, probably no one's done any training, I think. So, <laughs> <laughs> so basically, once a year, you come out and slog around South London for a full marathon distance, walking, not running. Um, yeah, and, then, and then you kind of put those year. shoes away for a year and come back and do the same painful thing the next year. Yeah, and spend, spend the, the next year recovering, <laughs> uh, trying to get ready for the next year's. Um, yeah, it's 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 a long day. We're going to be out here about 10 hours, I think, in total, and we're going to burn so many thousand calories and do so many hundreds of thousands of steps or whatever. So it's, uh, yeah, it's pretty, yes. it's pretty big. It's yeah, you, cert you certainly are. You mentioned Julian Chenery being with you. Are there other um, celebrities who do the march in particular? Are there are there Palace players, ex-Palace players, owners of the club, anything like that? Yeah, so uh, Andy Johnson's doing it this year. So I think it's his second or third Whoa. time doing it. He's somewhere away out the front, I think. Uh, saw him, saw, saw the back of his head briefly at the start, and then he's gone. Um, Mark Bryant has done it every year as well. He's a great supporter of foundation um so i saw him briefly as well but here they are you know as ex-pros they're, 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 they're quite competitive so they're up the front leading the way and we're up the at the back like the sort of you know like the boys at the back of the bus basically the cool kids essentially yeah the cool the cool kids andy johnson and mark bright aren't just palace legends they're football legends so hats off to them for doing it um uh yeah you mentioned being the cool kids back of the bus uh it's you there's only about 150 people doing it i think we have to be honest and say uh football fans are generally not as fit as football players i think that's fair to say <laughs> that's fair yeah even as a generalization I want to let you get uh, get back to it in a moment. But apart from raising money um, for the foundation, which is which is wonderful and which I'm going to be doing on the uh, on the mountains here, hopefully within 10 hours. That's my plan next week. Next Saturday, I'll be, I'll be out there a week from now. Um, there is a little reward at the end. I mean, when you finish at the palace ground, do you, do you just pack up and go home or where does where do you actually get to finish at the palace ground? So, the, yeah, so it walks into into Selhurst. Um... Right, you know, around the pitch. So they let you sort of walk around the pitch and take photos and sit on the sit in the dugout. I mean, the, the obviously the the worry is you can't get up again from the dugout, but they do let us do that in the ground and um and then they put on a sort of spread at the end and as well as a DJ this year. I don't know. Can't imagine anyone's gonna have the energy to be dancing at the end of it. But yeah, they 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 definitely make it worth our while um at the end. It's just nice to see all the sort of faces from the foundation and the other walkers and you know, there's a lot of support for each other, but good camaraderie. So it's all um it's all nice, but you know, right now the end does feel quite, quite far away, but we'll get there. And of course, Jim and Co. did finish it. Jim with multiple blisters. As you'll hear, if you uh, do listen to the FYP podcast on episode 442, they did a Marathon March special in which they do talk to the organisers about uh, really some, some of the wonderful work in more detail done by the Palace for Life Foundation. But to see us out, I'm going to flip the script. This is me on the previous podcast, FYP, Fanzine, FYP podcast 441, talking to Jim about my impending marathon match but tony 
Now, you are obviously not in the country at the moment, uh, but you are also taking part in the Marathon March. Uh, tell us uh, what exactly you're going to be doing uh, while we're all walking around South London. Um, well, while you're walking around South London, I'm probably going to be at home because I'm doing it a week later. Um, so <laughs> okay. I may even call you. I may even call you just to see how you're doing and just be like, no, no, I'll, I'll do this in a week. The, I've loved the idea of the Marathon March since it started. It's, it's, it's a wonderful fundraising um, exercise i guess exercise is the word and it always falls at a, at a time where um where i lived you know the, the autumn is really the best time of year and it's not a good time to be over and i'm i'm enough of a uh long distance person that i'd really quite like to do it and last year it really struck me i should i should try and tie this in so we have an annual uh trail marathon uh which sometimes is the last weekend in September, but it's actually a week later. It's on the the 1st of October. It's in the Catskill Mountains. It is unbelievably almost exactly, you know, 26.2 miles. It just happens to be over the Catskill Mountains, and it's uh, 7,000 feet of elevation and five, four peaks above 3,500 feet. And um, I'm used to... To running this sort of for fun. I know for some people that doesn't sound like fun. I've never hiked it and let alone um, hiked it within the cutoff time, which is 10 hours because it's meant to be run. So I thought that I would set myself the challenge. And I reached out to Bobby who organizes, you know, the, the, the marathon march. And he was all up for this to make me an honorary kind of a marcher, I guess, this year. And I am going, I have, you know, got my fundraising, just giving page up. I am going, I am fundraising for the Palace for Life Foundation, not by joining you in South London and stopping off in pubs along the way and getting in the palace dressing room afterwards, but by um, hiking this uh, full marathon distance on the Catskill Mountains, up and down the mountains, hopefully within 10 hours, which I've got to say is a serious challenge for me because it means going under 23 minutes a mile, which is uphill, downhill, climbing mountains, down mountains. And, uh, you know, I, that's way more of a challenge than just saying, oh, I'll, I'll run it and I'll do it, you know, and maybe you can chip in a few bucks. I wouldn't feel I was doing anything out of the ordinary. So for the same reason, I know a lot of you um, people who sign up, it's maybe a one really long walk a year and maybe the first marathon distance for a lot of people. So I wanted to give myself a challenge to support the, the Palace for Life. And that's what I'm doing. And I'm actually really scared <laughs> in well, a healthy I'm... way, in a good way. I think being scared in a healthy way is basically sums up being a Palestine, I think, for the last uh, yeah. however many years. <laughs> yeah. Um, firstly, I don't know what you mean about stopping off at pubs along the way. We would <laughs> never do that. I don't know where that rumour's got from. And, and you know, 7,000 feet elevation is very impressive. It's not quite as high as the hills around Crystal Palace, but it is not too bad um, either. So that is, that is very impressive indeed. So um, can you let us know where people can... Oh, we should say, well, this is the Catskills in, in upstate New York as well, in case anyone wasn't uh, quite aware the, where that, that is uh, um, and the fact that you are sort of over the other side of the pond. Um, can you let people know how they can sponsor you if they think this yeah. is, uh, this is well, clearly very impressive and they'd like to help uh, out? And I, I would really love it if they did. And I know a lot of Palace fans may already be sponsoring somebody, but even if you want to just send me a message and say, you know, I'll chip in a, a pound if you do it, um, or just I'll just give you a, just an encouragement. Um, but, you know, it would be wonderful. So I guess all of us are on um, justgiving.com slash fundraising. Mm-hmm. And then mine would be another slash Tony Fletcher 6'4", which potentially is not my age, but it may have given away my birth year. 
So, uh, <laughs> so it's justgiving.com slash forward slash fundraising forward slash Tony Fletcher 64. And I've given the explanation there. Um, I will be doing it a week later. I'm really excited. I'm really nervous. And I'm really happy to be doing my bit for the Paris for Life Foundation. And in case you didn't get it right there, I'll have that link for the Just Giving page in the show notes, and I'll put a link in for the Palace for Life Foundation too. Uh, just to uh, sort of copy and paste from their own spiel, the uh, Palace for Life Foundation uh, works in schools and the community with extra focus on those not in education, training or employment, those caught up in the criminal justice system and those with disabilities, physical and mental health challenges. So there are lots of uh, similar foundations doing great work anywhere and everywhere and even in these very difficult financial times and they are tough right now and they're especially tough uh, for, for people back in um, in the UK anything that you can do or give is appreciated and any encouragement that you can do or give to any such organization is also really appreciated additionally appreciated is you lasting this long through a first episode we kind of doubled up here somewhat going to be back in a couple of weeks with ken posner and some barefoot hiking and uh thanks so much for taking part here uh you can find us on social media you can send us an email again just look at the show notes love to hear from you and uh, hit that subscribe button and you know put in the review in all the right places and we'll see you back here soon for another episode of Once Step Beyond.